random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Walt Flanagan. I have done the comic books Cryptozoic Man. I've appeared on the TV show Comic Book Men. And I'm on the podcast called Tell Em Steve Dave. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with one of the gentlemen behind the show, Comic Book Men, one-third of one of my favorite podcasts, podcasts, easy for me to say, Tell Em, Steve Dave, as well as the illustrator behind comic books such as Batman Cacophony, Batman the Widening Gyre, Cryptozoic Man, and most recently, Knights of the Fifth Dimension for Blue Juice Comics. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined with the uh, the leader of the ants, Walt Flanagan. Walt, good evening. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, an, it's a pleasure to be talking to you guys. Hell of an intro, and where have you been recently? <laughs> uh, where have I been? Um... In Jersey, you know that's that's I rarely ever leave the state. So yeah, I haven't been really anywhere. Well, you were at uh, I believe uh, MegaCon recently, weren't you? Oh yeah, yes, that's right. Yes, I did go to MegaCon down in Orlando. Yes, when when I wrote the the book, when I heard about that, I'm like, wait, Walt Flanagan went across state lines. (laughs) (laughs) I'm allowed to. It's just I choose not to. See, I remember uh, you were supposed to be uh, at Terrificon one year in Uncasville, Connecticut, and I was like, holy crap, Mitch actually got a Walt Flanagan appearance, and I'm like, oh, oh, never mind, never mind. I was excited, though, for that, because I'm like, holy crap, he might be able to do this. He might be able to, you know, get the uh, the, inf- the Infinity uh, Tesd. <laughs> I know we're going to be talking about the book, Walt, but... I need to have a little catch-up, if possible. It's my favorite condiment. I'm kidding. I do like that, though. But, I mean, since the show 2012, Comic Book Men, um, what would be, I want to start with, like, a typical recording day schedule? How long did it take to do an episode, put it together before it was ready to put onto the air? And, you know, the time spent since it's not been on, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So you want to... To get here a typical day on the set of the television show? Yeah, aside from, you know, Peter having an appearance, which I know will come up, but I'm glad I brought it up first, actually. A <laughs> uh, typical day, it was a pretty easy shoot. I mean, there was really no heavy lifting uh, on that particular show. I mean, it, it, it featured four guys who, who were definitely, you know, not brought together before, you know, for this show, we were all friends for years, and we were allowed to roll in at like 11 o'clock, start shooting at 11.30 a.m., and go to about 5.30, 6 o'clock, and that's a real, that is a very easy schedule, and then being able to just have to talk about comic books and pop culture, movies, uh, it was certainly, you know, 
know, just like a, a a walk in the park for most days on that set. Well, you know what? Surrounded by all your friends and everything. Yeah, and all the stuff. I mean, you know, uh, but it sounds like that, yes, the hours that you mentioned and the fact of coming in late in the morning are two very big pluses when you're talking about doing a television production, which would last 12-plus hours under under other circumstances, I would assume. Right. I think this was the anomaly in the, in the industry where, you know, usually you're starting way, way earlier than that and going far, far longer. Uh, but we were able to get whatever, you know, the production needed, you know, in the, in the span of like six hours, it yeah. felt like, or, even, you know, sometimes even less. And a typical episode probably was pulled together over the course of maybe four or five days as they got, would get the trip. They would pick transactions, you know, over the course of the summer. And, you know, they would, we would shoot all summer and then whatever they would grab for transaction wise wouldn't necessarily have been all in one day or, you know, those episode transactions maybe, you know, were done over the course of 30 different days, unless it was transactions that were specifically targeted for whoever was guest starring in that episode. Right. So you hit the sweet spot of the recording and or the banker's hours of, of doing that, too. <laughs> well, how much, uh, if you know, would have been recorded? I'm sorry I'm getting technical here, but uh, how much would have been recorded and how much hit the floor as far as, you know, cut out, edited? Uh, you know, I can understand going off on tangents and other things but oh my god yeah there there's hours and hours and hours of uh what they would call they would ask us to get banter of for little you know little bumpers in between scenes so we would go we would have a full day devoted to just talking about subjects so like you know brian Michelle, who was the showrunner he would have a jar and he would have production just throw in suggestions about you know comic book related themes or or you know sci-fi movies horror horror movies and we pull it out a part of a note and he would be like okay you know talk about this and they would only use like 20 seconds of it right we would talk about it for and probably and it would probably devolve into things that they would never want on the air or you know get a little bit too blue for amc maybe or and so there is thousands of hours probably over the course of the seven years that that was on that, you know, AMC is just sitting on. So they're not sitting on a fortune, but they're definitely sitting on a ton of, of content that never aired, though. Sure, sure, exactly. But except for, you know, in the store footage and going out, you know, on location, so to speak, other scenes, the only other one that I can think of is, I assume, in a studio somewhat darkened where you had your mixing board and you were all around the table, so to speak. And that was where? That was not in the stash. That was at a at a location on the same street as the stash, but it was like in a production studio right. where they set this uh, fake studio up where, you know, Kevin would come in for maybe three times a summer. You know, we would to film three days of him just talking to us about what we had filmed. So that was like the schedule. He We would shoot for like two weeks. Kev would come in, and we would talk about the transactions that we had, the guests that came into the store, and then he would leave. I mean, he'd only be in for a day or two. He would leave, and then he'd come back in the middle of the summer. He'd do it again, and then he'd come back at the end of the summer to get all the rest of the transactions or appearances that he 
would have to be, you know, he would have to converse with us about. Yeah, and that so just... he was only only on the set probably six days out of the out of the whole summer uh, when we shot Comic Book Man. And you know, in regards to the show overall, in regards to the uh, cutting room floor kind of stuff. When I was on, I was there with the uh, inappropriate Punisher action figure. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, different uh, moments, <laughs> and I'm just looking back at like them uh, shooting the uh, Punisher rocket off at Ming's face a couple times. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's going to be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, there, there's plenty of, of um, roads we would go down that, you know, that we knew, you know, that they would never air, but you know the uh, the production team you know would just allow us to go you know for a pretty long tangent before they would be like all right all right it's definitely gotten to a point where like there's none of this is usable we got to get back on track. It made for ni- for very nice television where you'd have your opening scene like I said in that other room production wise made up and then finishing up with the end and of course the faders coming down at the end of the show the on air light going off that kind of thing. Um, and uh, over time did get to meet at least Mike and Ming for, I guess, when they first started coming to uh, to shows. And, uh, the, where in the, uh, when, uh, the conventions they would appear? Yeah, Mike and Ming yeah. were definitely, uh, they they definitely uh, adopted or were drawn to the con circuit for a while. Ming still is. Ming, is, Ming has not stopped. Mm. I'm not sure about Mike, but uh, Ming definitely is, the fucking ro- oh, excuse me, the road warrior of <laughs> of cons. And it's funny because in regards to the uh, convention circuit, I I feel like if you put up a uh, convention sign, Ming will find a way to show up there, just any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think his goal is to have, to have be at a con in every state. Hey, he may have already done it already. And now know? he's working on a global con uh, calendar. I could only imagine how sad Ming was when the pandemic happened, and he's like, I can't even go to that. I can do a virtual con. I I have never seen Ming sad, ever. I have never seen the guy ever in a a state of where I could even say he was even down. He is is the living embodiment of the uh, Energizer Bunny. I I remember uh, in an in an unreleased version of this show we have an episode with him like pre Infinity War you know talking his predictions of it and I remember getting an intro from for the show from him and it was his Pucknut style intro with Welcome everybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he had his radio voice yeah now in regards to just comics in general you know what's your origin story like where what was your first comic what you know. What was the bug that bit you? Not, you know, radioactive and whatnot, but the one that got you into the realm of comics as a fan and then leading into being a professional. Um, well, my earliest memories, uh, I remember the house I lived in, like, like when I was like four or five, yeah, probably four or five. And I always remember there was a cardboard box at the foot of my bed filled with comics some had covers but most did not and you know they were like bugs bunny comics flintstones and superhero comics batman of course and spider-man but the one that i remember being fascinated by and just reading not no, i didn't read it at that point i was just looking at the pictures was a fantastic four 112 didn't have a cover it was a giant battle between the hulk and the thing and it was just a uh, I just knew him as Rockman, 
mm-hmm. and this green monster. And I just recall looking at it every morning when I woke up. You know, I would I would grab that book off the pile, and eventually I would you know be start be to be able to read that book, and it introduced me to you know continuity and all the other characters and all the ads that were in that book about other comic books and how they were connected and the Marvel universe and everything. And from, since I could, my earliest memories, you know, I, my mom would just come home constantly with comic books. Whenever she would go out, she'd bring one or two home. Because at that point that only costed her 15 cents or 20 cents. It's funny, by the way, that you mentioned the uh, hostess pie ads in Knights of the Fifth Dimension, available at bluejuicecomics.com. One of the things I really enjoy about that ad, other than the minor gore of what it has, it feels almost 110% like what you would have seen in a Hostess ad, right down to the tone, the pacing. I'm like, are, are we sure this is not a, just like a you know a lost one? Well, I appreciate that as a high compliment because those were like the most bizarre uh, cross promotions ever of the of the pies and and Marvel superheroes, you know, using a using a a snack as a way to uh, you know defeat a supervillain. Always, as even as a little kid, I was like, this this is terrible. <laughs> but you know, there was still you know a lot of affection for it as you know as you grow older and you know the the nostalgia of uh, you know Spider Man or Hulk, you know being throwing a hostess a pie into Dr. Octopus's mouth and him being like, you know what, I'm, I'm done for the day. Take me to jail. It's that, it's <laughs> that serotonin. <laughs> it's the serotonin of those sugary snacks. It helps. And it, it's funny because, like, I would love to see a, you know, collection of those book, those uh, ads put together. Like, I'm surprised, you know, the big two have not done that yet. Oh, a Marvel masterwork featuring every hostess ad. Well, then, well, you have to do it as a, like, as a, a a cross publication or a crossover with DC because they had it too. Yeah. You know, somehow they can iron it out with. I mean, is Hostess still even around? I don't know who owns Hostess at this point, but you know, there's a, those are something for the lawyers to get into a big room for and lock them in there and don't let them out until there's a, a, a an agreement where they can reprint all the Hostess ads in a nice, fat, sweet hardcover. And some great artists were doing those, which is hilarious. It's like. It's it's an ad of that kind of caliber, but it's like, you know what? We're gonna put our a, a game uh, people on this title or this not title, but you know what I mean? This ad. Oh yeah, well, it looks it, seemingly they got the creators who were working on the books at that point. I mean, I, I think it looks like Sal Buscema is doing the Hulk one. Uh, Ross Andrew is doing the Spider-Man one. And it's it's funny by the way that you mention uh, artists such as Sal. Are you a John or a Sal guy? These are the hard-hitting questions we have here, by the way. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I'm not even scoffing at, like, or, or, or going to say it's not a hard-hitting question. I don't know how to even answer that because both of those guys were such a, like, were so huge a part of me growing up that I, I can't even say, like, well, I wish John had drawn this one instead of Sal. No, I, I never thought that. I, I loved their art. Equally, it felt like you know. I love the Sal Buscema. I know Sal doesn't get as much. I don't know. Is it? I mean, I don't know. I always assumed that you know John always got more recognition than Sal did. Sal seemed to have more of a, I don't know, a, a feel of like where he was the guy that was just plugged into books here or there, like when on a deadline squeeze. But 
I love Sal's art. Sal's art is especially great in the 1990s when, like, you know, he's pushed to the side, dismissed by a lot of, you know, the, the mainstream mm-hmm. fans because he's not, you know, a uh, Todd McFarlane or a so-and-so. But you look at what he's doing with the Bill Sienkiewicz inks on, like, spectacular, gorgeous-looking yeah. stuff. So underrated. Well, Walt, yeah, it you. sounds like what you're saying between Sal and John is that, you know what, you as a comic book aficionado reader were getting whoever was, was putting it together and like, okay, and then you just take it in and, you know, go from there. So, yeah, no no partiality. I I can totally see that. Maybe uh, what's a little bit less difficult question is we've got your little origin and stuff and favorites from the beginning possibly, but who did you grow into really, you know, either identifying with or you know, considering your top three favorite comic books or characters? That's a good question. All-time favorite comic books? Yeah, sure. Ever? Yeah. Uh, runs? I, I mean, it's got to be the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run. I That one just, like, floored me. I, I was probably 14, 15. In my, I think he started in 84, and I love that run. I love Rick Veach's follow-up run, too, which doesn't get a lot of love. Um, but that would be one of the, my all-time favorite runs. I, I love a run of a, of a lesser-known, or not lesser-known, but you know, not always in, not in anyone's uh, conversation of all-time great comics, but Werewolf by Night 30 through the end, 43. Mm. Uh, Doug Bunch and Don Perlin. I, I just, I, I reread it yearly, uh, 30 through 43. It's just one of my all-time favorite runs. It's just, I, it got canceled just as it was turning into, like, it was going to be, like, I was so excited they had given Jack Russell the ability to speak and think uh, 27 out of the 30 days, because on the three days when the moon was full, he still was a um, a mindless werewolf, but otherwise he was able to control the ability now and transform at will to the werewolf and speak while in werewolf form. And mm. he had teamed up with Iron Man, and it went like those last two issues. And he was going to turn. He went to the Avengers Mansion. He met Jarvis, and he was going to be. It looked like they were building this road where he was going to be like a superhero now. Then the book got canceled, and all that you know was forgotten basically. I'm actually opening up my Marvel Unlimited account. You said it was 30 to what? 43. 30 to 43. Perfect. Uh, in that run, that's where, like, Munch and Perlin really just, like, there's this epic three-part, um, like, Hell House uh, take on the all the fall from House of Usher in 34 through 37, where there is just, like, it is the creepiest vibe ever as... You know, they're, they're at this haunted house. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it is a haunted house, but it, sound, it is so cool. And there's a there's a villain in there, I think, I can't remember what it is, like Belasco or something like that. And it is so underappreciated and so, like, really just, you know, nobody even knows about it, really. I mean, and also in that, of course, there's that, you know, 32 and 33 where they introduce Moon Knight. Mm-hmm. Some guy who I'm sure nobody knows what I'm talking about Moon Knight, right? One day he'll make an appearance. You know, you never know. <laughs> Less than a year my ago was different. Three? My number my number three all time. Oh, my God. That, that, that changes constantly. My number three, it could be uh, John Ostrander, uh, Suicide Squad, mm. the entire run. I think, you know, that, you know, one through 
what, what I think 60 something, 66. Yep. But I love that uh, John Ostrander and Luke McDonald run of um, of that book. Now, do you include the uh, Deadshot four issue miniseries as well? That yeah, yeah, yeah. That I absolutely that has to be included in there. That is one of my all time favorite miniseries. Uh, it's just so dark and it's just so perfect. And again, another a guy who doesn't get enough recognition. Luke McDonald. I love his artwork. And it's funny, by the way, that you mentioned first off uh, with you know with Deadshot. When I uh, met you at the stash years ago, I had you sign my copy of uh, why, or I think it was Cacophony, and mm-hmm. you know you would draw like little uh, Batman illustrations, and I'm like, can you do something different, just you know to test you a little? And you did Deadshot for me, and it's one of those uh, illustrations I have. I'm just like, this is the coolest thing. Just the usage of color and how you you know managed to make everything pop on that page on that book, you know? Oh, thank you. Yeah, he's one of my all-time favorite characters. You know that 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 the personality that that Ostrander gave um, Floyd Lawton. Just, I just loved that book in the '80s. And I loved every month when it came out, and you know he was killing characters left and right. It was it was just a great book with a lot of um, political intrigue. It was just something that like i was so disappointed when it got canceled and i know that the and it's been bought back you know multiple times but it has never been able to for me personally to recapture that that feel and that vibe that those guys had back then you know on our show uh, we talk every once in a while about like I'll, I'll mention 19 late 1980s mid to late 1980s dc is some of the best and most underrated comics you'll ever see you know you have the uh, Paul Kufferberg four-issue Peacemaker series. You got the whole run of Vigilante. You have Suicide Squad, Justice League International, which je- then becomes Justice League. Just phenomenal stuff. And Who was it that also brought up uh, Omec at yeah, one point? Yeah, there was uh, Omec by John Byrne, that four-issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing stuff. Yeah, they stuff. did that prestige. It was a black and white, I think. Um, or at least a dark black cover with the, was it it was the square the bound, I think it was. Yeah, it was yeah. prestige format, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you also have, you know, Jim Starlin coming over doing Batman, and you wouldn't expect a guy known for, like, the cosmic kind of stuff to stick to a character like that in a way that he did and pulled it off phenomenally. Yeah, he did a four-issue uh, run with uh, Bernie Wrightson called The Cult. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember listening to a podcast with, I think, you and Kevin talking about that, and he was mentioning about how he hunted down a copy of that book at a flea market, and you just go, you could have got it cheaper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but that was a great book. You know, I mean, Bernie Rice, and we had never seen colors like that up um, at that point. And that book came out in '89, I believe it was. It was startling to the eye. I don't know. I mean, probably O'Leaf, Steve O'Leaf, probably did that. The colors on that, but it looked unlike any other comic book color-wise that I recall up until that point. Though now you see it all the time, but back then it was just like. You know, a shock to the system to see all the colors, the stains that they put on Batman's gray suit, different stain colors of gray to make it look like he had gone through hell. It's just a f- great book. As a big fan of horror yourself, would you put Wrightson up on your uh, horror illustrator uh, Mount Rushmore? And if so, who else is up there? Oh, yeah, he's yeah, he's definitely up there. Um, Bissette, Totalbin, um Don Perlin, you know, um, he did those massive run on Ghost Rider and a massive run on Werewolf by Night. And 
you know, two great horror books for Marvel in the 70s. So I put those guys on my Mount Rushmore of horror, comic book artists. And look at uh, Frankenstein's Monster by uh, Wrightson. Amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. Let's get to your book now and uh, just get into maybe not step-by-step all of it, but uh, the process of getting this Knights of the Fifth Dimension put together. Okay. um, Knights came together uh, because I had just finished Cryptozoic Man, and I wasn't really doing anything with with my evenings, and I had the itch to work on something, but I had nothing to work on. And Mike and Ming, who we mentioned earlier, who were were on the con circuit, they would come back every weekend with uh, small press, independent indie comics that creators would give them, you know, while they were at the cons. And they would bring them back, and they would, you know, they would bring them back to leave them on the table, leave them on the counter, and I would always check them out. You know, some were decent, some were really bad, but there was one that really, like, resonated with me, and it was called The Civil Four. And I really liked the, the dialogue that was in it, and I have never done this before or since, but I actually... There was an email in the, in the in the inside front cover or somewhere that I could contact the guy who wrote it, whose name was Casey Van Heel, and I just sent him an email going like, "Hey, I checked out your comic book. I, I really liked it, and um, if you have any other work, I, I would I'd like to uh, pursue it and, and read it because I really thought it was really well done." And he emailed me back, and we struck up a, a conversation. And he he was younger than I was, but he definitely had you know read a lot of the same things that I was into and. We tried to come up with a concept of working on a book together and started out where he had thrown out this idea about a sentient comic book that was found at the site of a murder and this homicide detective, you know, had picked up this comic book that was beside a murdered man and it was alive and it was communicating with him. And that kind of turned into, that was like the springboard into turning into what the Knights became where it was a little bit more, uh, less about the murder and more about um, a, a comic book that is kind of alive. And then we threw in all the, the stuff, you know, all the, all the homages to, you know, Kirby and all everything else that's in the Knights book. But that's how it really came about, though. You know, as somebody who's listened to a lot of Tell Him Steve Dave, watched a lot of comic book men, you know, I can tell like how much of this, especially in you know your illustrations, what you're putting out there is 110% Walt Flanagan, and it's really cool to see, 
you know, your love of all of this stuff coming to fruition. You know, you've done Batman stuff, but to be able to, you know, put more and more of what you love in pop culture in this book is incredible to see, especially, you know, for example, the homage to uh, that One Kiss uh, Super Magazine from the 1970s. Oh, yeah, the Marvel Super Special. Yeah, yeah, that's what, that is one of my all-time favorite comic books, too, because it's just was so... So well done and just so like um, like a pivotal point as like a kid, you know, seeing it on the rack and seeing Mar- Marvel superheroes interact with Kiss just it, it literally just, you know, in a catonic state after reading it because it was everything I wanted in both worlds combined, Kiss and Marvel superheroes. And I go back to that, that magazine constantly for inspiration. But yeah, the, there's so many Easter eggs in there. I mean, if you look in the background uh, of some of the scenes, like when they're at the police in, in the nights, you'll see TV detectives from the 70s hanging out. You'll see Kojak, Starsky and Hutch, Beretta. It is just a love letter to uh, from 1972 to probably 84. And I just, again, I, I love that homage that you did to the uh, Kiss cover, and right down to at the bottom, made with real knight's blood, which I have to ask, how many knights were sacrificed for this? I mean... <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no knights sacrifices. Again, just like trying to somehow like recapture you know, what, the excitement. Like the fact that somebody like reads that and, and gets what it is, you know, is, is cool. It's, it's enough of, uh, because I was just on my own just doing that. You know, Casey was cool enough to be like, Go crazy! Just throw in whatever you love, and uh, you know I'll write. I'll write for what you are throwing in there. You know, just anything that I recall, like a snow cone maker. You know, I would just like a Snoopy snow cone maker. I turned into a knight's version of that for this episode, just because I remember having one when I was a kid. And it's a it's a cool time when you can see an artist and an illustrator collaborate in a way and you know, all cylinders, you know, click. They, you know, are going, whatever the expression is. Eddie, what is the expression? All cylinders are... Firing. There we go. Wow. <laughs> Good for... <laughs> See, Walt knew that he was holding out on you, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, like, I've, I've done stuff on my own, you know, as a comic writer, and having an illustrator that can pull something off, and, you know, you're both working in tandem, very copacetic. I love to see that. Well, thank you. With respect to, and let's talk about the characters themselves, if you can, uh, for those who don't know about the Knights, um, how you decide to come up with the number that you did, and again, some traits or characteristics about all of them. Okay. Um, there's five Knights, but the, the four main ones were um, the Damn Yankee, which when I was coming up with, with um, concepts or names, I could not believe that somebody had not used the name Damn Yankee yet. Like, I was like, I was convinced. I was like, oh, there's no way that I am the first person that's ever going to, like, come up with a concept of a patriotic slash, you know, satanic angled character. But you know, I, I looked. I Googled it over and over again, and I had, could not find anybody who had used the name Damn Yankee in any way other than in that, you know, the baseball movie. Uh, he was he and each of the characters, each of the knights represented different genres of, of comic books. So the damned Yankee represented war comics. Um, there was the Professor Odious Amorphous, and who was um, you know he represented horror comics, and 
he just wears a sheet like a ghost from you know back in the in, in the 40s or 30s and he only could communicate by um, his chest bleeding through the sheet he'll just communicate with words on his chest you know bloody words uh, he represented horror genre of comics um john 316 was a a catholic robot and he represented like sci-fi comics and Kriga Bun- Bundalo. Um, that actually, I don't know if you guys know what Kriga Bundalo means. No. It sounds like if you read seventies like, Tarzan comics, you'll know what the, you might ha- you might know Mangani. Yeah, the Kriga part sounded familiar, looked familiar, but maybe a little different spelling. Uh, no, it's uh, in the seventies Marvel comic books, uh, Tarzan books. Uh, they would. They would have a page devoted to teaching you Mangani, and Mangani was, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it was the language of the apes. And Kriga means beware, and Bundalo means I kill. Oh. He would say that from time to time, Kriga, Bundalo, you know, to some animal, I guess he was talking to Tantor or, one of the, or any number of, of apes that were, you know, battling him. He would say, beware, I kill, so that's where the name comes from, Kriga, Bundalo, and he, and Kriga Bundalo represented Jungle Comics, which have now, you know, you don't see many Jungle Comics, but in the 70s, you know, there was plenty of Jungle Comics on the, on the racks. Sure, whether it was, and this is no slight of pun reference, but between Tarzan and, and Shanna the She-Devil and then crossing over into uh, D.C. with a character also, I think, Rima. I thought you were going to make a pun saying they don't swing anymore. No, it was... It was, <laughs> anyway, it was Kazar, the... I would call Kazar a Jungle yeah. character. And, um Korak, I remember mm-hmm. on the stands when I was growing up from D.C. It's kind of funny that Kazar might make an appearance one day in the very near future because, you know, even on film and television, because they're bringing him back in regards to, you know, the modern books. And I feel like that's the uh, testing ground for what could be next. I never thought I'd say, you know, Kazar might be something we might see as a big deal in the near future, but here we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like a concept that People will go crazy for you know a, a guy who lives in a in a in a land filled a secret land filled with dinosaurs with all these crazy ass villains ro- roaming around and just a, well again in Marvel the Marvel Cinematic Universe loves secret lands I mean they got to introduce the Savage Land at some point I would think I feel like something recently they did they had a dinosaur in it and I feel like that was the subtle hint towards what could be I know. Um... Did did you see uh, Doctor Strange the new one? Yeah. When he's and spoilers for people listening, but there's a part when he's going when uh, him and America are going through the different universes. I think I saw the Savage Land in one of them. Like I saw a dinosaur. I know I saw one. I would have to probably watch it streaming to like slow it down for my old eyes. Yeah, me too. I don't remember <laughs> dinosaur. It will be available this month on Disney Plus late mm. this June. That's right, June twenty second. <laughs> Disney, please pay us. <laughs> <laughs> that's the PL part okay um, so then you referred these characters these five characters to different um, genres and I wasn't sure what you know Fifth Dimension ties in with that or not uh, you know Damned as opposed to Damn Yankees because that's a music reference in itself that super group and Fifth Dimension also another group so um, I guess that's just the dimension that we are not familiar with as human beings that's why it's that time 
Eddie, I enjoy, I enjoy our show because I knew you would mention Damn Yankees. I knew you would mention it. Well, he said it so many times oh, I had to. Oh, there was a band called Damn Yankees. That's what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, Ted Nugent, I think, and a couple Oh, yeah, it had, yeah, I never even thought of that. No, Tommy Damn Shaw. Yankees, I remember as a movie when I was a little kid, my dad would watch. It was about, I think it was about the actual Yankees, I think, or maybe I'm... No, I think you're absolutely TV. right. Yes, yes, it sounds it sounds vaguely familiar. Not that I haven't, I've watched it, I haven't, but, but yes, I, I agree with that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I, re- but, I remember the Ted Nugent group now. Yeah, exactly. High Enough was the, the hit ballad, the power ballad, and so on. Right. <laughs> and in regards to how the characters are introduced in the book, there's a part later on, I want to say it's in the last issue, of the modern versions of these characters. Like, you're seeing the new Damn, uh, Damned Yankee, and I'm loving that two-page layout for each one. Like, it just makes it such a dynamic thing that I feel like when you get character introductions like that back in the day, you don't see that. So to see that, that would have fit in perfectly during that time period, but they ultimately never did. But the way you did it worked really well. Oh, yeah, thanks. I, like, we were, we knew where we wanted to go. Like, you know, we wanted to introduce the new versions of the characters because, you know, it feels like such a a comic book thing. It's like, you know, like, out with the old and with the new, it, it feels like that, I feel it happens now more than it did when I was reading comics, but, you know, we definitely wanted to get that feeling of ushering in new versions and saying goodbye to not only, you know, the older versions of the characters, but the creators themselves. I, you know, I always would, you find it sad that, you know, that like, a lot of the creators that I grew up on, you know, they kind of just disappeared, you know, other than, the, like, the legends, other than, like, the, the superstars. But the guys who were the journeymen, the guys who were working on books, just seemingly, you just stopped seeing their names in comic books. And we, me and Casey, were trying to get that kind of feeling of, like, you know, it feels like there's just this constant turnover, just like, I guess, in any form of entertainment. But we definitely were going for that, like, you know, say goodbye to the older guys, here's the new version, and at some point, they're going to go away too, and these characters are going to change, and, you know, it's the endless cycle, and that's what we were trying to convey there. Uh, hopefully, we did it in a way that, like, that's, all, or like, hopefully, like, I, I don't need to explain that to everybody, but mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes it, you know, we're trying to do so much and squeeze so much in that I, I was sitting there going, well, I hope that that comes across, and I hope under people understand what you know, how deeper this really is, but I don't know. One? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, maybe in a small way or on a little bit of a tangent, that's what the cover of Knights of the Fifth Dimension might be saying to me, or just two different art styles that were, are represented here. Uh, on the issue one cover? On the Yeah, well, actually, this is the uh, collected edition that I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah. The um, We were trying to go for to let people know that, like, there was two different styles of artwork inside every issue you know when we're in the real dimension quote unquote real dimension we'll have like a there's no hard ink lines it's all like kind of like has a digital paint look to it Mm. to kind of convey that like this is the real world and when we go inside the comic book world it looks like a traditional comic book so we're trying to get both of those styles on the cover to let you know to try to let people know that there's a you know it feels like an old comic you know a retro comic but you know, it's a little bit more than just, um, you know, a, a throwback. 
and in regards to you know the overall feel of how the knights are in the book you know with the uh, the the will versions of them it feels like avengers you know kirby era avengers meets the uh, fourth world kind of like there's just like that energy that bombacity of it and especially by the way your utilization of the kirby crackles is stellar that is harder than it looks and it's way more time consuming i'm sure that he he could probably do it in his sleep but my god you could draw those circles and, and ink all those circles it's freaking so much harder than it looks to do kirby crackle I, I, eventually after i was done with the book i've been drawing on a tablet lately and somebody came up with a brush that does it now yep. like a digital brush i think and it's... i was just like mother <laughs> i had known this <laughs> I, during, I was doing it all by hand. During uh, Jacktober, I remember discovering that uh, that brush, and I'm like, "Ooh, this is fun!" And I'm just like, "I'm like, this is something somebody could do in you know, like ten hours." I'm doing it in five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and in regards to you know overall the characters, one thing I got to say about the knights is I would love to see them as individual characters or just give it its own standalone series. Has that idea ever been discussed with you and Van Hill? I would love to, because like I said, just like stay, because, I mean, the book took, mostly because of me, it took seven years to finish, and not because I was working on it constantly, or like some sort of like, you know, 16th chapel, just because life and other things got in the way, and when I, even when I was done, you know, the, um, Wayne Jansen, who did the inks, I mean, who did the colors, you know, he did those digital colors in, in the painted world, and it takes him a long time, you know, to get it you know, to get pencils to look like digital inks or digital paints. So, yeah, if we were to do another one, a follow-up, I would love to just stay inside the comic book world. And it's a lot, you know, quicker and easier to do than going back and forth between, you know, traditional inks and colors and then, when you know, doing what Wayne had to do, like half the book in a much more laborious um, mode of art. I will say, though, I feel like there's a lot of stories that could be told individually with some of these characters. Like, I would read a Damned Yankee uh, ongoing, both versions. So uh, Yeah, I would, just, I would, yeah, maybe like a, like a, a Marvel double feature where you know, it's two, you know, the, the classic version of Damned Yankee, and then you flip it over, and it's the, uh, mm. the current version, or the modern version. I like that. I think that's even still a thing, that flip version. Yeah, uh, sometimes they out do. Out there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that really, I mean, I guess it would really depend upon, you know, if there was a demand for it. I, I'm not sure, you know, what will what will happen. Be, you know, the book comes out, I think, in July or August. I know you guys got, um, they, 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 we did something that I'd never actually seen a, a, a process or a, a rollout that usually I, I, I've never heard of it, where we, where Blue Juice printed the trades uh, before they released the the comics and uh, and that's a long story but it was before the, the tom steve dave um patreon you know we boring story but that's why and so i guess it really depends on if blue juice you know if feels it's worth you know going back to uh the knights of the fifth dimension world for future uh stories or comics i'll say this i think it'd be it's going I think it could work as its own imprint, personally, like its own, you know, universe of characters. Oh man! Right? I mean, I would love to do that. It would be so cool. But you know, it's it, it, 
it really is dependent upon, you know, if, if it connects with people and, you know, and it's hard, you know, I mean, that's, I, I worked at a comic book store for 20 years. I know full well how hard it is for a small independent comic book or a small press book to make a dent or to make any kind of inroads to find an audience because, you know, I was on the other side. I know that what retailers are facing, it's like, do I take a chance on an unproven book, you know, or do I order, I can order 14 copies of a book I know I can sell. Should I go to 12 and then take an order two of this unproven book or should I just, you know, stick with what I know I can sell. And especially in, in this, you know, state of, of, of the industry, but why? I, I understand how hard it is for, uh, for retailers to take a shot on anything unproven. But Walt, think of the Flanniverse. <laughs> I've missed that Walter laugh too by the way. Holy cow. Yeah, and I've seen the ep- all the episodes. Uh maybe not so much uh, when they would air at midnight because my job starts at 6 a.m., but the the next night let's say on a a, a recording kind of thing. The DVR. DVR yeah. exactly. Yes, until that craps out and it's time to get another one and start over again. Or you can watch it on Amazon Prime. Video. Nowadays, well, if the, you know, before the days that I knew of of that and so on. And one one thing I've always wanted to ask you, I would always go to the uh, comic book men panels at New York Comic Con, and I would always attempt. There was one year I was two away from going up to the microphone, and Kevin did a forty minute question, <laughs> and um, I wanted to ask you guys this because you and uh, Kevin have been working on the Batman books over the years, and one of my biggest takeaways with them is the titles. And I remember whenever I would, you know, I remember when I first saw the title, I had not heard the title spoken, and I would call it cacophony. And then I realized, oh, I'm an uneducated ass. I have to look up the proper pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) Widening gyre was the same, where I knew people that would call it the gyre. And then Kevin was going to be doing uh, the third one, Bellicosity. And what were some of the greatest mispronunciations of those titles you heard working retail and just, you know, with fans in general, and what words do you think they would have maybe botched with bellicosity? Uh, well, definitely I heard caca phony. <laughs> yep. You know, sure. I, I definitely heard that a few times. Um, gyre, absolutely. Uh, bellicosity, I didn't really, I mean, you know, most people, unless you're a hardcore, you know, Kevin guy, I don't think you know anybody really knew what the planned title of the of the final installment was going to be. So I didn't really hear a lot of uh, people question me about it. I mean, they'll ask me when it's coming out constantly. Hey, when's that coming out? Or when? But they were not aware of the of the of the announced name that Kevin had given it. And on this show, we will not be asking the same usual question. If you want to uh, hear the answer from Walt, I believe there was an interview you did fairly recently uh, on a show, and somebody had asked you that. So, ladies and gentlemen, go to that show. (laughs) But it's funny because, you know, you've been able to work on a character such as Batman in the past as well, and that lineage of all those creators, and you're up there with them. You can be able to say, you know, you got to be with, you know, the names like such as Neil Adams, a George Perez... A um, who who else is there? Some really good ones. Uh, oh, I mean, my favorite Batman, I like Jim Aparo. Mm-hmm. 
Good choice. Uh, that's uh, that's the man. was my guy growing up. Uh, I loved his work. Um, Bry Fogle, Don Newton. I can sit here all day. I mean, there, there's just so many great bands. And I don't, I mean, very flattering for you to say that, but believe me, I don't uh, ever, uh, I mean, ever think like, oh, I'm, I'm with those guys. No, I mean, I was lucky enough to do it, you know, and I realized, you know, I was lucky enough to do it because I knew Kevin. You know, I, I don't have any uh, illusions that uh, I would have gotten it without, you know, him asking for or, you know, telling DC he wanted to do it. Be like, if I'm going to do it, I want to work with my friend. And they were kind enough to agree. But, you know, I, I don't ever uh, sit here and think, oh, I'm, I'm with those guys, those Titans now. I'm just, I'm just um, appreciative of that they were they allowed it, you know, to a guy who really had no business doing it, uh, do it. See, I think this is where you, Walt, and Peter have some commonality in that, you know, you aspire to and you get into what you read, you immerse yourself into wanting to actually emulate or do it yourselves. Where am I, myself, I am just really uh, the reader. And over months, and I've said this in early episodes of this podcast and and, in other uh, conversations where I'll go. At one point, I was a collector of about 24 titles a month, and I would see month after month the same names. And so, oh, yeah, I recognize that name. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, But for you guys to just be able to rattle them off in the blink of an eye is something I can't really ever uh, get to maybe that level. I can recognize somebody's art. Eddie, with that attitude, you're not going to be the next Fletcher Hanks. (laughs) (laughs) He just throws another name Uh, out there. You know, I I just consumed comics as 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 a little kid. I mean, it just was, there was no more better form of entertainment for me, you know, TV I mean, I could take it or leave it as a kid going over comic books. It was like a comic book was far superior to anything that was on television for me. And even movies, I mean, I mean other than Star Wars back then, it was, or Planet of the Apes. I mean, now, of course, you you know, there's a superhero movie every every other month or every week on, on streaming. But back then, I mean, a comic book was gave me way more um, joy than than the movies did. And that's like I, and the after I read it, I would read it again, and then after I would look at the credits, and I would like, you know, I would follow writers and artists to anything they did. It was, I was just consumed by it and for it, a long time. You mentioned, by the way, the movies and stuff, and how there's like we're being inundated now with it nowadays. Do you feel like we're approaching a fatigue with a lot of this stuff with the movies and TV shows? Uh, I mean everything. I think everything has a shelf life, right? I mean, nothing lasts forever. I mean, I'm sure that we'll still continue to see rollouts of Marvel and DC characters in movies and stuff, but maybe at some point it won't be on such a a regular basis as, you know, as the general public, you know, who is now, who is definitely going to these movies just as, as hardcore guys are going to them and gals, but... Yeah, I think everything at a certain point will maybe slow down. For uh, you know, they're just throw, they're just throwing out everything now. It's like it seems like it's which is good, I guess. When it when it's good, it's good. When it's not good, it's not so good. Mm-hmm. And you know, being a fan growing up with these characters, and you're seeing some of these characters make the jump to the big screen and the little screen. 
who were like some of the characters that you know in recent memory you've seen you're just like wait they're making a what out of him um shang chi had to be the one where i was like i when that when it was announced years ago i was like oh my god this is going to be phenomenal it is going to be the greatest thing ever i cannot believe they're doing a shang chi movie and of course you know i was uh i was prepared to be disappointed as as the uh as the months you know to lead up to the movie was being released and i was uh, fully made aware that like the character that is going to be in that movie is not you know the character i grew up on and loved it's just so weird seeing some of these characters. Like, we live in an age where there's a Morbius movie now. How bizarre. Yeah. And if, I haven't seen it, but from what, I'm, from what I've heard, probably should have waited on that or not done it at all. If you close your eyes, you can pretend the movie's better. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's the great stuff. Like, I, I think the Daredevil uh, Netflix show was the high point of all this stuff. I mean, of course, you know, people point to Avengers, Infinity War, and, and Endgame, and it is breathtaking and, and awesome, but Daredevil stands up there, in my opinion, of just how gripping and how gritty and how awesome it was. And, you know, when you, when you were growing up, starting up as a fan, you're growing up in the era of when Miller is starting to become the superstar and the name in comics. What is it like, you know, what was it like back then to experience that for the first time, like seeing his rise as a creator on Daredevil and then going off to do yeah. what he's done. I, I'm old enough to remember when Daredevil was a bi-monthly. When, you know, for Marvel had bi-monthly comic books, so it would be 60 days in between seeing a Daredevil comic book on the rack. And I remember, you know, Gene Cullen was on Daredevil before Miller, and Roger McKenzie was the writer. And, you know, Miller is introduced, and he very quickly becomes the writer of the book. You know, Mackenzie leaves, and they give him the writing chores and the penciling chores. And he quickly turns that book into a monthly because it's so well done, and the, the kingpin-daredevil relationship is, you know, you know, because people now is, you know, just associate kingpin with daredevil. But, you know, for me, it was like, oh, you're bringing in Spider-Man villains. And he was fighting Dr. Octopus, like a lot of Spider-Man villains work uh, Miller took, you know, to uh, battle Daredevil in his run. But, yeah, it was, like I, yeah, that run of uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil is, is pretty untouchable, too. And it's kind of funny you mentioned that he had taken over the full creative duties on the title. His first issue, full-on Frank Miller, is the debut of Elektra. You know, you can't go any bigger than that. Right. Yeah, he, right out of the gate, you know, he's, he is uh, making his mark and doing things that 30 years later, you know, that that was the Bible for that television show. Well, th thanks for kicking me in the head, sort of, with the memory of Gene Collin in a Daredevil cover. I think the first Daredevil I purchased or got exposed to was a Black Widow kicking Daredevil in the head cover in the 150s. I think it was the issue number. It's like, okay, this is, and I recognize over time, oh, yeah, that's Gene Collin kind of thing. Yeah, he has a very distinctive style. Mm -hmm. And seeing Gene Colon also on Howard the Duck is something where it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it works magnificently. Yeah, yeah. So now before we wrap this episode up, Walt, thank you so much for speaking with us today. 
Oh, thank you for having me. And how can people get a hold of you on... Uh, I know you're not that much of a social media person, so how can people listen to you on podcasting formats? Um, I guess you can go to iTunes and type in Tell Him Steve Dave. Um, that's where you can find the podcast that I'm on. Uh, I'm on I have a Twitter, but it's, oddly enough, it's called at Sunday Jeff, all one word. <laughs> Is that the day of the week um, or the dessert? Uh, the day of the week. Okay. Sunday, Jeff, J-E-F-F. Uh, long story. If you listen to Tom Steve Dave, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But that, that's my Twitter handle. I don't really do a crazy amount of, of tweeting, but that's where it is. I don't, I don't have a Facebook. I don't have a Instagram. I don't have any of that stuff. You're not one for gizmos and gadgets. Oh, no, no, definitely not gizmos and gadgets. No. They're... Uh, I, I've come to accept them more in my life than I when I made, originally made that statement, but uh, yeah, I, heard, I found out that they they have their value. I heard something fairly recently, and they use the phrase "gizmos and gadgets," and I'm just thinking to myself, "Is that an ant that's writing this?" Because <laughs> it just got me like, "No." I've heard of it, and and Walt, I share that sentiment with the technology, and because sometimes I think it hates me. Well, a lot of times actually. And uh, considering being in radio, that's a little bit of a challenge, but we, we amble along. <laughs> we try. We do our best. Yeah. Now, Knights Constantly of the Fifth trying to play catch up. Yes, yes. Knights of the Fifth Dimension will be available when and where do we know? Um, well, I, I imagine if you want a copy uh, and you want to buy it in, in the traditional manner and you want to go to your local comic book retailer, probably should pre-order it through previews i'm not sure you know how many copies they'll have on the rack when it comes out in either july or august but if you let your retailer know you're you're interested if you're into bronze age comic books you're into kirby stuff uh, you should find something of redeeming uh or in some sort of uh, enjoyment out of it hopefully and it's a four issue miniseries so it's not all that long one, two, three, four, and it's, and it's over. And as far as additional material, should that become like, all right, we want to keep going with this in the works, they, or oh, you have that stashed away, to, so to yeah, speak? That really is dependent upon Tom at Blue Juice, mm-hmm. who was nice enough and kind enough to uh, take on the project and get it over the finish line. And if he was like, hey, we want to do more, I would definitely do more. But, uh, you know, I understand it's a, it's a business, and you just can't do my passion projects you know if they don't make money i actually saw you and bry at uh, new york comic-con 2017 and you were doing a signing for number one and that was where myself and my friend joden who is actually the one who gave the wedding dress for the uh get him uh wedding oh <laughs> <laughs> so to be able to see you know the evolution of this book you know all this time it's amazing to see and the end result is fantastic oh i appreciate that i i really do thank you you know for Guys who, you know, if I always said, like, if I can get people who have been around reading comics for a while, if I can somehow get them to just look at it, I think that they'll find something, you know, something that like, oh, I remember that. Or, oh, man, wow, I haven't thought about that in years. And, you know, another thing before we uh, close this episode, we also want to mention the Tell Him Steve Dave Patreon Okay, yeah, definitely, yeah. We have Tom C. Dave as a Patreon, and we release uh, a different show, almost like a basic cable um, project, I treat it this as, where 
we have multiple shows where we take uh, somebody who is from the Tom C. Dave universe and kind of give them their own cable access show and and we do all sorts of fun stuff uh, on that as well. And again, it's it's so I remember um I th- you guys have the uh, Making Hay documentary on there as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's a project yeah, that I was so so happy with. Your show made me fall in love with flea markets, and I hope one day you can, you know, go across state lines and come to New York so you can <laughs> witness the uh, Stormville Flea Market uh, in Stormville, New York. Just, I don't know yeah. if it's on par with Collingswood, but it's pretty damn good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just at a flea market the other day, on last Sunday, and there is nothing quite like wandering around a flea market where you find a table that has you know, some 70s albums and baseball cards and comics, and they're also playing uh, like a, a 70s radio station. And it, it is as close as you're going to come to a time machine. Mm-hmm. You know, I was walking around, and they're playing Frampton and Elton John, and you're they're blasting it from table to table. And it is as close as you can come, in my opinion, to stepping back in time. As you're, you know, purveying all, or looking at all the all the stuff that uh, you know that you remember from your childhood, it's awesome. It's flea markets. Collingswood is the one I've wanted to hit up the most, though, because I've heard nothing but good things about that one. Yeah, Collingswood has a has a mystique about it for us. I don't know though if it's if it's uh, that killer of a of a flea market for people to travel a long distance for it. You know, it's kind of on fumes, in my opinion, no, only because I mean eBay and and has kind of killed the flea market around here. I mean, there's one in Columbus, New Jersey, that still kills. It still kills it every Sunday. Is the but magazine guys? Yeah, they're kind of like I've always. I wouldn't be surprised if Collingswood just one day is like sells to a developer to put condos on that land because there's just really not a lot of uh, vendors or or uh, traffic. It can be Action Park Five. We just skipped one. <laughs> well, well, Walt, getting this book out word-wise and so on and promoting it, is that something that would be considered also? I mean, how much time has to go by after it is released to the general public that it's decided, you know what, we got to promote this, uh, Walt, we want you to go out to cons or something. I don't know if you would do that. Um, I mean, I don't fly, so i got to drive everywhere. So if it's within driving distance... Mm-hmm. And if it makes, you know, fiscal sense, you know, for Blue Juice to be like, hey, we want you to come out and promote the book, I feel I'm obligated, you know, just because of uh, my friendship with Tom um, and the, the publisher of Blue Juice and for him, you know, taking, you know, nights and, and getting it published where I, uh, there were so many times I'm like, I don't know if this will ever see the light of day. And, you know, he, his passion to get it done, you know, I feel like I have to the way, only way I can repay him is, you know, is to try to promote the book for him and turn it, you know, get it into the black for him. Walt, as uh, a 33-year-old who finally took his first uh, plane flight this past month, I understand that aversion to flying 110%. <laughs> it's great. It's yeah. nerve-wracking, right? I mean, some people do it, and they, they don't even bat an eyelash, you know? The turbulence. Yeah, but- the turbulence, yeah, the, that's all I'll say. Yeah, the anxiety of flying, yeah, I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to have to, like, revisit that feeling and i haven't since 1995 i was gonna say how did you get to megacon i drove I drove 
Yeah, I thought I heard yep. that you drove. Exactly. Yeah, the worst part for, for me with the flying is this the change in pressure with the ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's the worst of it. Um, oh, no, we had well, also, the worst part is the lead-up to it. The, 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 like, like, okay, I got to – like, I could dwell on it for, for weeks, if not months, mm. and it could just, like, be in my head – you know, seemingly 24-7, like, hey, in, in 30 days, I got to do this. In 29 days, I got to get on a plane. In 28 days, every day, just this mm. anguishing countdown. And I'm just finally, it's just like, I'm not, you know what? It's just not a part of me. I'm just not going to ever do it. I've heard stories about, like, Evan Dorkin, for example, on uh, airplanes where, like, we, he's gripping to the uh, the seat. And I'm like, I get that. I get that now. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you go? Uh, we went to uh, Orlando. Uh, same, we were there the same time you guys were there, but we didn't get to hit uh, MegaCon up. I wanted to go though, badly. Oh my god! Yeah, there was. There was someone told me there was three-hour lines to get your car into the parking lot. Well, that's fun. <laughs> god. Yeah, yeah it, it was packed. I just don't. I don't yeah. understand like the whole thing of you know. It, it's weird that conventions are starting to be a thing again, and I'm hoping uh, it'll go flawlessly. You know. Oh, as far as like you know, COVID and everything. I heard there was a, a massive COVID breakout out of the uh, out of the Orlando con. Oh, the that's guy fun. I go with, you know, the guy I drove down with, like he he was so worried about COVID, and of course he went. He followed every chat room, every thread about on Reddit about uh, the Orlando con, and he was like texting me. He's like, "There's a massive COVID break- breakout from MegaCon," and I was just like, "Are you sick? I'm not sick. You can't worry about it." Yeah. Yeah. And like it's it's funny because like we're going to be doing a New York Comic Con and it's last year was okay, honestly it was uh, each day got more and more packed. But I loved that Thursday. It reminded me of the you know the older cons I used to attend back in the day when it wasn't that bad. I didn't get hit in the what ass. Is so, that? Uh, that is going to be I think the seventh through the something. Eddie Eddie, look at the calendar. The calendar says. It's pasta day. It's, Thanks, Eddie. <laughs> looks like October sixth through the ninth. Yep, sixth through the ninth. Oh 9th. yes, that's right. Yes, it was every October. Yep. We hope you'll we'll be able to see you at New York Comic Con though, just because you know, bring along Bryce. Oh, and thank you. Yes, I hope to see you guys there. Yes. Or meet at a store in Jersey, a comic store in Jersey, just unnamed for now. I saw you at Mister Pizza Face once, by the way. <laughs> that is a good really? pizzeria. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think when we went to do the uh, Comic Book Man episode, and we saw you there afterwards. I'm like, hey, Walt. Hey, and that was at the end of that exchange. Riveting, right? <laughs> All right, again, the Knights of the Fifth Dimension, Blue Juice Comics, and I think, yes, I, if I recall from my AMC comic book men history, the person who had his hands most of the time in the cash register, in a good way. Walt Flanagan, thank you again. Oh, I appreciate it, fellas. Thank you so much. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Walt Flanagan. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel. Walt Flanagan edition. Thank you again. Uh, here we go. This is no one true three, though, I gotta say. Well, I'm getting three multiple choice possibilities, though, right? Nope, four. Four. Four, okay, okay. Question number I eight. I need three. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes <laughs> no, the answers lead themselves to, to that, but sometimes it's like, what are they thinking? Question number 856, which reads, which S.H.I.E.L.D. agent was assigned to Tony Stark in Tales of Suspense, number 83 through 95. And they give us 1966 as the time frame. Again, which S.H.I.E.L.D. agent was assigned to Tony Stark in Tales of Suspense, 
83 to 95. Choices are Gabe Jones, Jasper Stillwell, me, Sitwell, Clay Quartermain, or Dum Dum Duggan. Jasper. I'm going to go with Walt on this. I read these issues. I just don't remember who it was. Oh, which shield agent? Okay. Jasper Sitwell. All right. I'm going to go along because I'm not doing anything else but pushing the button. B. Yes, that is correct. It's good to start off with a bell ringer, so to speak. I didn't hear the bell. Oh, okay. <laughs> when, when you play this back, hopefully it'll be there. Oh, you got, oh, you put it in post. Okay. <laughs> no, it's more no, just it's, the... It's built in, but it might not have carried through my microphone too well. <laughs> it's kind of right, old school. Good start. We didn't have... It is, actually. A right answer is always good. Making my Monday a little bit better. Question 466. Which name has the Sandman not used? Choices are Sylvester Mann, Stephen Sanders, Flint Marco, <laughs> or William Baker. I'm sorry. Just having Sanders as one of those names just got me. <laughs> um, can you read them again? Yeah. the name. Which name has the Sandman not used? Sylvester Mann, Stephen Sanders, Flint Marco, or William Baker. And honestly, I didn't know. I'm going to go with A. Sylvester Mann. Okay. I am lost because I know that I only knew him as Flint Marco. Yeah. I'd, I guess I need more extensive Sandman reading, among other things, of thousands of other comics. I want to go with B because I feel like it's just going on. Like, he would not be like, my name is Sanders. Like, that's just giving your identity oh, well. away, you know? Well, but I feel well. like A is the right choice. So we're going to go with our, our guest choice and go with letter A. I'll hold the, the little micro thing up to the mic better end. No, it is not letter A. The correct answer, according to this, is B, Stephen Sanders. <sighs> My Peter Tingle was right. <laughs> you ignore yeah, that. You're two for two. That's <laughs> All right, so we go on either side of this. We're back to square one, sort of. All right, so let's flip up ahead to 2390. Almost there. And get past it. Not quite. Working my way back to page two. Page two. All right. See, I went past it. Rhyming, Figures. Eddie. Two, th- <laughs> two, three, nine, zero says, how did the Phantom Rider convince people he was a ghost? Bribery. Choices are, he faked his own death. He wore a phosphorescent costume. He learned mystical spells from an American Indian shaman. Or he possessed mental ability to cast illusions. How did the Phantom Rider convince people he was a ghost? Again, this is from Ghost Rider, as I recall. Uh, well, oh no, we were talking about the Phantom, Phantom Rider, the Night Rider from the Cowboy. Uh, no. Oh, then it, it's the phosphorescent suit. It's not giving me a time frame on this, but again, he faked his own death. You're saying he wore a phosphorescent costume. He learned mystical spells from an American Indian shaman. Phosphorescent. And he possessed and or mental ability but, uh, to cast illusions. He's called the Phantom Rider, right? The Phantom Rider. See, okay, so I was, okay, I originally I was thinking about a motorcyclist and Ghost Rider who was oh. called the Phantom Rider because that cowboy one was originally called Ghost Rider, but then he became right. the Knight Rider. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, Phantom Ghost Rider was the cowboy one, right? Right. All right, so we'll get, we're going to try no, the no, fo- no, I don't think he is. I, I don't think it's a phosphorescent suit then. <laughs> I think it's the shaman one, then. Mystical spells from an American Indian shaman. I was actually torn between that one and the mental ability to cast illusions myself. Uh, I 
don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. this one. Yeah. Is I'm he... gonna, okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with you two. The mental abilities. Did you say you wanted to? Well, you were Peter going along with the uh, phosphorescence. I was going for phosphorescent, to be honest. I'm not gonna go with phosphorescent. Okay. Because that I believe is the the Western Ghost Riders who became Night Rider in the 70s. I believe that was his shtick. And it how could he be. Convinced yep. people he was a ghost, but he was never called the Phantom Rider, though I don't believe. Mm. That was a that was a motorcyclist character in Ghost Rider, I think. Man, I'm looking up the character on Marvel Unlimited. Oh. And they don't even have anything with him. Oh, jeez. Okay, they so do a blonde Phantom. Well, that sounds like another what, thing. What altogether. a load of good that'll do for us in this. Mm-hmm. So are we between <laughs> we're between C and D. I think. Well, Walt seems to be going with the, the shaman answer. No, Let I'm gonna see. go with the with the mental. Power. The mental ability. All right, my Eddie Tingle was saying. Oh no. D the casting illusions, the mental ability. So I'm gonna hit D because I can. And it's no, the answer is B, phosphorus in costume. Ah. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, that's a trick question. Yeah, I guess. Where's Tom Brevoort when you need him? trick question. Mm. On the positive side, you can check out Avengers 1959 starring Blonde Phantom, oh. <laughs> written and illustrated by Howard Chaikin. Howard. We love Howard. Howard is yeah, my favorite. The, the cowboy um, western version of Ghost Rider slash Night Rider. Yeah, he would yeah. dust his white costume with phosphorus. There you go. Yeah. I knew that, but he mm. wasn't called the Phantom Rider. Mm-hmm. Your Walt Tingle was going off, and we didn't know it. Okay. Yeah. First answer sometimes the best. his name again. I didn't remember it. <laughs> what, what, what name haven't we used? Serious question, Eddie. Was it Phantom with a PH or an F? PH. Okay, because I, I just typed it in. I'm like, maybe it was a Phantom with an F? No. Like Phantom X? Yeah, no, I might have actually uh, said something if it was a different other than I yeah. would know Phantom to be spelled, yeah. All right, let's do one more. 2422 is the question. Number 2422. Who was not a member of Freedom's Five? <sighs> is it Crimson Cavalier, Ghost Girl, Sir Steel, or Phantom Eagle? Another Phantom. Oh, no. Who was not a member of Freedom's Five? Crystal, excuse me, crisp, crispy cream donuts. Crispy, crispy, yes. Crimson Cavalier. <laughs> long day. Ghost Girl, Sir Steel, or Phantom Eagle? First, Eddie, you almost said crispy critters. We're not talking about Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru. This is true. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm gonna say A. Okay. I can't place Freedom's Five to begin with, so I'm out of yeah, this. Yeah, same. I, I'm gonna have to go with A as well. Mm-hmm. All right, let's just knock this off and go with letter A, Crimson Cavalier. No. <laughs> the answer is Ghost Girl. Which which makes me think that, yes, the other three were members of Freedom's Five. I think that's four. Gentlemen, we tried. We Should we try to redeem ourselves and get two right at least? What color or what material is for, Iron Man's costume made out of? For, <laughs> the results may surprise you. Titanium. No. It's paper and ink. It's that song, Titanium, isn't it? I am Titanium. Oh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. For, all right, 489 for not all the marbles. Which of the following characters was not one of Norman Osborn's successors as Green Goblin? We may actually get this. Yeah. Was it Roderick Kingsley, Harry Osborn, Phil Urich, or Dr. Barton Hamilton? I know Phil was... Phil was a successor. That was the Green Goblin from the 90s because Benny Eric's son. So we take out Harry and we take out him. Yes. Who else do we got? Barton Hamilton. I Ham- think he... Hamilton was. Was, he I was, think, uh, yes. In the 70s, and 176 through one, 
Oh, that far? Oh, okay, he was, that far? He was a psychiatrist to, uh, for Norman, yeah. for Harry, who, uh, mm-hmm. and then who he, took up the costume for a while. And he died, too, didn't he? Uh, I don't remember if he died, but he had a he, he had a mustache and a little yes. little beard. Yeah, and he, he was got, definitely a goblin. And you're saying the the other guy is definitely one. So who are the two remaining ones? Well, we're down. Well, we're taking out Harry. We're taking out Phil Urich. We took out Doctor Barton Hamilton. So it's we're left with Roderick Kingsley. Now, who was the? Uh, so I guess we're not. Who was Hopgoblin? I mean, did, did we ever get definitive? I know Ned Leeds was. Yeah, at, he was at a certain point. And then there was another guy, because I, I just read these issues fairly recently, too. I'm on my uh, reread. Update, ladies and gentlemen. I'm up to 257. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, no, 256. Sorry. Okay. Um, but the character, uh, there's a random uh, hood that ends up becoming uh, Hobgoblin right before it's revealed that it's Ned. Oh, just okay. Just a random guy. Okay. Well, I'm pointing to Roderick Kingsley myself. Kingsley? All right. Is if that what you th- everybody in agreement? Yeah. Kingsley? Yeah, if we seem to knock off the other three. So let's try letter A. Roderick? Yay! <laughs> Did you hear the bell that time? No, but I'm going to take that, that euphoric <laughs> I, yay. Yes, <laughs> right. i got to turn up the mic. Okay. <laughs> the yay is like bells in a way. Yay, clang, clang. <laughs> Thank you again, Walt. Appreciate it. Thank you. We're out.